Praise God that Jesus Christ is our living hope. No amen to that one, huh? (laughs) I was talking with someone just before the service and just uh, everything that's going on right now in our current world seems like uh, just a lot of things are all happening all at once that are troubling things. You know, we've had this coronavirus thing going on for over two months now. Last couple of weeks have seen some difficult things happen in our country, and especially the response to those things is certainly troubling. And sometimes we wonder why troublesome things happen, why difficulties happen in our lives, or even on a larger scale, why uh, difficult things happen in our nation, in our world. And I was just thinking as I was singing that song, Living Hope, and thinking about the conversation that I had before the service, maybe Jesus' only plan, I'm sure he has many, but one of his purposes may simply be for us as believers to remind us to continue to loosen our grip on this world and to reach forward for the next that this world is not the end. This world is not the be-all, end-all of existence. This is a fallen world. And so we should expect fallen things to happen in a fallen world. And so maybe disappointments and troubles and trials and all these things come, if for no other reason, just for the one reason to remind us that, as Paul says in Colossians 3, we need to seek those things which are above where Christ sits at the right hand of God. And so we look forward to a new world and we have that hope because of Jesus Christ, who is alive. He is our living hope. He is alive, therefore we have the hope of life eternal. If you have your Bibles this morning, I would love for you to turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And the last several weeks, we've been walking through this passage together, just thinking about it from the context of crisis, uh, from the context of things that are that have been going on in recent weeks. And, and I do think that Paul in Romans 12, the things that he encourages us here, these exhortations, they're for all of life. They're for all of our Christian walk. But we've been thinking about them, particularly in the context of crisis. And this morning we come to some verses, beginning of verse 14 and then more toward the end of the chapter, that deal with the subject of persecution. And I was thinking about the verses that Paul gives us here in this passage in the context of this current COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic that's been going on. And just thinking about ways that the church in particular, Christians in particular, may face persecution during this time. And so I was thinking about how these things can compound, can join together to make things even more of a trial and difficulty for Christians. You've already got a crisis. You've already got difficulty going on in the world, whether it be health or economic you know, unrest, whatever it is, you've already got these things going on in the world that are troublesome in and of themselves. And then for believers, sometimes those things are heightened because 
those things may give rise to persecution that is directly connected to our faith in Christ. Some of you may have come across this story a couple weeks ago. There was a church that was burned to the ground in Mississippi. Holly Springs, Mississippi, First Pentecostal Church. This happened about um, middle of May. And uh, the church had decided that they wanted to continue to meet in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic. And whether you argue with the wisdom of that or not, that's kind of beside the issue. But they faced, I believe, direct persecution because of their faith and their choice to worship together. And that church was burned to the ground through vandalism, through arson, and a message was painted, I bet you stay home now. According to persecution.org, the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom has noted that Christians, along with Hindus in Pakistan, have been denied food and other resources amidst the pandemic. A Christian worker in Pakistan said that discriminatory practices weren't necessarily stipulated by the government, but that they were not stopping distributors from pressuring minorities to convert to Islam if they wanted food. And so things are difficult, things are scarce, you need food. Well, we're going to keep that food from you unless you convert to Islam. Authoritarian regimes, this is also according to persecution.org, authoritarian regimes have already shown a knack for taking advantage of crises and will continue to do so under the guise of public health measures. The Chinese Communist Party provides one such example. Uh, The Chinese Communist Party has torn down Christian crosses. And another article that I read uh, said that they um, closed uh, one church and demolished its building. So they're using this crisis, this opportunity to crack down on Christian worship and meetings and China being officially an atheist, communistic nation. So this time that we're in may cause persecution for believers, not only here, but around the world. What is our response to such things? Well, Paul tells us not only during crisis, but at all times in verse 14, he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's bow together. Our Father, we come before you today with our Bibles open and prayerfully with our hearts open. 
to hear the truth of your holy word. Lord, feed us today from your word, nourish our souls, and uh, strengthen us, encourage us for the opposition, the persecution that we may face, specifically because we are Christians, because we trust in you, in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and your Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would bless this time of teaching and preaching. May your holy word be communicated clearly, and may the Holy Spirit teach us and impress these truths upon our hearts. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. What I'm going to do with these verses today is I'm going to kind of divide what Paul is doing here. In in many of these short sayings, short exhortations that Paul gives us in these verses, he has kind of a, a negative side of it, more of a prohibition side of it, do not. And then he, then he has more of a positive side to it, a do, an encouragement, a command. And so I want to kind of separate those and do this kind of more in an organized or systematic fashion other than the way that Paul presents it here. And I want to look first of all at the passive response to persecution and mistreatment. The passive response to persecution and mistreatment. And the idea of passive there is we are the receiver of the action. And so when, when ill will is done toward us, to us, when we are cursed, when we are persecuted, when evil is done to us, what is our response to that when we are the receiver of that action? Well, Paul tells us some things. First, he says, do not curse. Do not curse. And so, in other words, when someone does evil to you, when someone mistreats you, when someone uh, hurts you, slanders you economically, verbally, physically, specifically for the name of Christ, Paul is saying, do not respond by calling down curses on that person. So, And it's interesting, isn't it? Because we have examples in the scriptures of David doing things like that in the Psalms. God rained down curses on my enemies, David says in the Psalms. But Paul says here, do not rain down curses. Do not call for curses to come down on those who persecute you. What's the difference? Well, couple of differences. One is David is praying in the context of a theocracy, a theocratic nation, Israel, that is the Lord's. And those enemies of David are also enemies of Israel, and they are enemies ultimately of the Lord. And David sees them as uh, contrary to God and the purposes that God wants to accomplish in the kingdom of Israel. And he asked God to judge them. Now, one thing that we should say about those Psalms, sometimes called the imprecatory Psalms or Psalms of imprecation, is that David is not looking to do the vengeance himself. He is calling on God, right? He's calling on God to be just and to bring about that justice. 
And so David's not just being vindictive. He is calling for the justice of God to be done against those enemies, for the holiness, for the righteousness of God, for the sake of his chosen people, Israel, for the sake of his chosen nation. And so in that context, for those reasons, those are certainly legitimate calls, cries from David to God. We in the context that Paul is writing in is a context that we find ourselves in today as Christians. He's writing to Romans, in a, not in Israel, not in Jerusalem. He's writing to Christians in Rome and really by extension to Christians kind of scattered abroad. And he is saying to them that our, our calling from God, especially now in this new covenant age that Christ has come, is to be a witness, to be a missionary, to be a tool, a channel of God's grace to the nations, even to our enemies. And so that the, the primary way of God's establishing his kingdom in the old covenant was through Israel, in Israel's borders, through Jerusalem, through the temple, through the, the king that God had anointed. In the new covenant age, God's primary means of growing his kingdom and establishing his kingdom is not geopolitical through a king, through borders in a certain nation. His primary means of growing his kingdom is through the church and through the spread of the gospel. And so Christ is reigning right now as king in heaven at the right hand of the throne of God. And his kingdom is going forth through his church. And as the gospel goes out, that kingdom grows throughout the ends of the world. And in the accomplishment of that kingdom, we are not called to rain down curses on our enemies. We are called to preach the gospel to them and to live out the gospel before them. And so Paul says, don't call down curses from God on them. Don't wish them ill will. Don't wish for God to condemn them to hell. Instead, pray and ask God to save them and to have mercy on them. So he says, do not curse. So in the passive response to evil, to persecution, first of all, don't curse. Secondly, do not repay evil for evil. In other words, don't respond in kind, right? And, and this is what, this is our natural instinct. In the flesh, in that the remnants of sin that are still there, even though we are regenerate as believers in Christ, he's writing to Christians, we still have the flesh that we're battling with. We still have indwelling sin that we're battling with. And sometimes those instincts want to pull us in the direction of somebody has mistreated me. I want to mistreat them back. That just seems just. That just seems fair, right? But Paul says, don't do that. Receive, and in this sense, literally be passive in the sense of receiving and taking and absorbing the evil that people bring, and especially for the name of Christ. And by the way, the things that Paul is saying in this passage don't mean there's not a place for government to punish evildoers, right? In, in Romans 13, the very next chapter in Romans, he says that's government's place to punish evildoers. So 
Paul is not throwing out completely here the idea of justice or of people who do wrong getting what is due them. He's writing in the context of Christians in the church who face persecution for the sake of the name of Christ. And he's saying, don't repay evil with evil. Don't respond in kind. He also says, do not take revenge. Do not take revenge. And one Christian says this, or one commentator says this, that this peace-loving attitude that Paul is encouraging us here with may be costly because some will want to take advantage of it, figuring that Christian principles will not permit the wronged party to retaliate. So what do we do in such case? The path of duty is clear. We are not to take vengeance. This would be to trespass on the province of God the great judge of all. And so we are to leave room for God's wrath. So we are not the ones called to execute wrath. We are not the ones called to be judge and jury and executioner. We are called to take the persecution from the world and leave to God his role of judge and executioner. Do not take revenge. And then he says in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil. What does that mean to be overcome by evil? Essentially what it means in the context of this passage is to not be so affected, influenced by evil that you feel the need to respond in kind. So the idea of here of not become, not being overcome by evil he means that we are to not then let evil control us. Don't let evil control us. Don't let the evil that other people do control you. I wish, and probably every parent in here can nod their heads and give amen to this statement. I wish I had a dollar for every time I said to one of my kids over the last 21 years, you you are not compelled to respond in a certain way just because your brother or sister does something to you. You cannot control what your brother or your sister does to you. And beyond extension to anybody, you cannot control what other people do to you. What you do have control over, especially in the spirit as a believer through grace, what you do have control over is your response to that. So do not let evil dominate you, control you, such that you are bound to respond in a certain way because of the evil done to you. In the spirit, have control over that evil. And don't respond in kind. And so there's a, there's a passive response to persecution and mistreatment. But what about what we are actively called to do? And you might think, and if that's not enough, right? What, what Paul has even said in just the, the passive response to mistreatment and persecution, that's a hard ask, isn't it? That's tough. Everything that Paul is saying here is tough and can only be accomplished in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
But now Paul is going to take all those things that we just looked at and he's going to then step it up to the next level and say, essentially, it's one thing to take these things passively and not respond in kind. But now I'm going to ask you to go above and beyond even that and to positively, actively do acts of kindness and goodness to others who persecute you. So there's a passive response to receive and take it in grace and humility. But now Paul is saying in the strength of the spirit, here's what I want you to actively do and give in these situations. Bless those who persecute you. So don't curse them, but that's not enough. I don't want you to just be silent because that's one possible response, isn't it? Somebody does something evil to us, so we're just silent. We don't curse them, we're just silent. We don't say anything. If you can't say something nice, don't say something, don't say anything at all, right? That's what we've been taught our whole lives. One response is just don't say anything, don't, don't curse. But Paul says, I want you to go beyond that. I want you to bless them. What does that mean? It means to pray to God and specifically ask God to do good things for them to rain down his blessings on them. And there's no greater blessing that you could ask for for an enemy of the gospel than for that enemy of the gospel to be converted and to go from a persecuting Saul to a saved Saul, also known as Paul. Bless those who persecute you. The word means to ask for a bestowal of special favor calling down God's gracious power and blessing on their lives. Wishing them well, praying for them. Jesus told us this in Matthew 5, 44. He says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So Paul is drawing from this here. Not only don't curse them, but pray for them. Bless them. Luke 6, 28, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Those are Jesus' words. So don't just be silent, but an active blessing, asking for God's kindness to come on them. He also says in these difficult situations, in these pressure cooker situations, these moments of trial, these moments of persecution, when people are maligning you, slandering you, or maybe even physically hurting you, He is asking us to do what is right in everyone's eyes. Now, how should we understand that? One way of understanding it is only do things that everyone approves of. I don't think that's what Paul is saying here, because if that were to be the case, then there would be essentially no difference between Christians and non-Christians, right? There, there are some things that we do as Christians that nobody's going to be happy with. So he's not saying here, just adopt a base level, bland, generic ethic that anybody and everybody in the world can be happy with. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is essentially what Peter says, I believe, in the passage that we read from 1 Peter chapter 3, is... Let it be such 
that when you are persecuted, you are persecuted for doing good, not for doing evil. In other words, do what is right in everyone's eyes is the idea of live out your testimony, live out your gospel calling. Ephesians 4, walk worthy of the calling that you've received. Live out your gospel calling in such a way that nobody in the world could possibly doubt that you're a Christian who holds to the gospel. Now, they might still slander you. Peter says that in 1 Peter 3. Do good, do what is right. You might still receive harsh treatment. He says, if it's the Lord's will in 1 Peter 3, you might still receive harsh treatment. You might still receive persecution. You might still be slandered, but live your life in such a way so that when you get to judgment day, those people who slandered you will be shown that they were wrong and that they mistreated you because you were living out the truth of the gospel. Do what is right in everyone's eyes essentially means maintain a consistent high Christian testimony, consistent with the gospel. Live at peace with everyone. That's hard, right? Live at peace with everyone. That's hard to do in our own homes with the people that we love sometimes. What about the world, unbelievers? What about people that are specifically intentionally mistreating you? Live at peace with them. That's hard. That's, it's, it's impossible, naturally speaking. It is only possible in the Spirit through grace. Live at peace with everyone. But Paul does give a couple of disclaimers even on that, doesn't he? He says, as much as it is within you, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And he says also, if it is possible. Sometimes it's just not possible. Sometimes the situations are such where there's going to be conflict. But be sure, Paul is saying here, you're not the one instigating, creating, stirring up that conflict. From your side, be the one who is seeking for peace, seeking for calmness, seeking for unity. Let the division, let the strife, let the the division, let that come from the other side. As much as is within you, as, as all possible, live peaceably and seek peace. Jesus in the Beatitudes called us to be peacemakers, didn't he? To bring people together. He says, leave room for God's wrath. And this is the opposite of taking vengeance. So don't take vengeance yourself. You don't be the judge. You don't be the one going out uh, like an outlaw seeking to take justice in your own hands. No, you leave it to God. And here's the thing. We have to trust God for that. We have to trust God for that. And that trust involves something that we hate which is waiting and patience. Because God's justice, God was teaching this to Habakkuk, God's justice doesn't always operate the way that we want and on our timetable. So God told Habakkuk and Habakkuk learned the lesson, the just have to live by faith. 
the just have to live by faith. And that means waiting and trusting in God to bring, to make everything right, but in his time. So we have to wait. We have to leave room for God's wrath. And sometimes that means just being patient. And, and it may mean that we don't see that justice lived out, fleshed out with our own eyes in this world, but we'll see it in the next, in the judgment day. We need that grace to wait and be patient and leave it to God. And he says, do real acts of kindness for your enemies. So don't be overcome by evil, but instead overcome evil with good. And he gives specific examples. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Thirsty, give him something to drink. And in so doing, you'll rain down coals of fire on their heads. And I think the intention of that metaphor is simply they'll feel ashamed. They'll feel ashamed. They'll feel scolded, if you will because of your acts of kindness for them, even in the midst of their hostility. Do real acts of kindness for your enemies. It's one thing to pray for God to bless them, right? God bless my enemies. Well, that's kind of generic and you can kind of leave that open-ended and and then you can take a wait and see approach and see, well, I wonder if God will bless them. But there are many, many times in our lives when we are the answer to our own prayer. And one example of that is when Jesus tells his disciples in the gospels, pray ye the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest field. And the very next thing that you happen, see happening is Jesus telling his disciples to go out and go into the harvest fields. So sometimes we are the answer to our own prayer. Lord, bless my enemies. Well, Maybe you're the channel, the instrument that he's going to use to bless them. If you're going to pray the prayer, then you have to be willing to be the instrument of the blessing. Do real acts of kindness for your enemies. And he says, overcome evil with good. So don't let evil dominate you. But in the spirit, we are no longer bound to evil, are are we? We've been set free. We're no longer in bondage to sin. So we can overcome evil with good. What is Paul teaching us in this passage? Even in the most trying of circumstances, Christians are called by our Savior to gracefully receive the mistreatment of our persecutors and to actively demonstrate sacrificial love to them. Not just when things are going well and when things are going easy, but even in the most trying of circumstances, Christians are called by our Savior to gracefully receive the mistreatment of our persecutors and actively demonstrate sacrificial love to them. Two things. One, you can only do this through the gospel. So this is not a moralistic sermon of, hey, just find it within yourself to do this because you won't find it within yourself. The only place you can find these resources is in Christ, in the gospel, through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Call to Christ in faith for the Spirit to indwell you, for Him to empower you to do these kinds of things because it can't come from you. And lastly, Jesus Christ is not only the means, gives the power, the ability for us to be able to do these things in the spirit. He's also the most perfect model and example of these things, isn't he? That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 3. He says, if you're going to suffer, 
Don't suffer as a criminal. You deserve that. Don't suffer for doing bad. You deserve that. Don't suffer for being lazy. You deserve that. He says, if you're going to suffer, suffer righteously. Suffer by doing good. Because that's what Christ did. Christ was the righteous one. He did only good, but he suffered. Why? To bring us to God. So Jesus, through his suffering, brought us to God, but also provided an example that we can follow in our lives. And so may God help us, give us the grace, even in the most trying of circumstances, to live out Christian love, even to those who mistreat us. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves the unlovable. You are the God who loved enemies. You're the God who loved rebels. You came and sought us when we were astray, when we were in rebellion to you, when we were your enemies. Christ died for us. And you came and you found us, just like the shepherd seeking the lost sheep. And you brought us home. Father, may we exemplify that love in our lives by being a channel of grace, of mercy, of sacrificial love to those around us, even our enemies. And may we pray for them and bless them and seek to do good for them. And Lord, may you be pleased, even through the persecution of your church, even through mistreatment, may you be pleased to grow your church and to build your church, which the gates of hell cannot prevail against. Use us, Lord, to expand your rule, your glorious rule through this world. And may we be your instruments of the gospel and of love. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.